Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Let's pray. God, as we gather again around your word, I pray it would accomplish everything you desire. Don't let us stand in your way. Prepare us to be open vessels who are ready to do your will. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning we stopped and we surveyed where we've been and where we're going in this series of sermons on the letter to the Hebrews. And now tonight we're going to stand back up and take our next step forward with Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 to 20. And this message entitled, Sticky Faith. When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now this passage of Scripture is situated on the heels of a stern warning against falling away and also a tender plea to stick with it. Apparently there were some in that congregation who thought it would be easier to just rejoin their old friends and do things the way they had always done things before they had expressed their faith in Christ. And they were probably right. It would be easier to do that. It's hard to swim against the current of popular opinion. It's not easy to take a stand based on beliefs, values, and principles that don't align with the current cultural flavor of the month. What will people say about you if you do that? Just ask one of these students up here if being a Christian makes them more of a target for jokes and jabs or less. When Tim Tebow lives out his faith on the football field or expresses his praise to his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in public forums every chance he gets, do you think that makes people scrutinize his life and question his his motives more or less? And ask Dan Cathy if being a Christian in the public arena is easy. The things I've heard said about him this week through various media outlets have been slanderous 
vindictive and downright hateful. It's not easy to stand up for what you believe in. So why do it? Why would anyone stick with it? Why not just call it quits, fold up the tent, go home? There are lots of other ways to spend your time, your money, your life, than investing them in connecting, growing, and serving. In fact, some wouldn't say you're investing your time, your money, your life by doing those things at all. They'd say you're wasting them. Well, according to the warning in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, you should stick with it, because if you don't, then you're actually crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to disgrace. Stick with it, because falling away, rejecting God's rescue plan that is being implemented by His Son in the power of His Spirit, is not a good move. And according to the plea in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, you should stick with it, Because God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you helped His people and continue to help them. Stick with it. Because love for God translates into help for others. And God takes notice of both the love and the help. So our passage tonight comes after that warning not to fall away and that plea to stick with it. And it offers the readers some reassurance that is based on God's promise, God's character, and God's purpose. To begin with, the writer draws the reader's attention to the promise that God made to Abraham. Verse 13, when God made His promise to Abraham. Now you see, Abraham was the prototypical example of faith among the Jews. Paul built an entire theology of justification in Romans 4 by highlighting Abraham as a person of faith. And you might be aware of Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. It began with an appeal to Abraham as the faithful founding patriarch of the Jews. But that's not the point being made here. The point being made is not about Abraham's faith. The only thing that Abraham did, according to this passage, is listed in verse 15, and that is, he waited patiently. So the point here is that God had made a promise to Abraham. In fact, God made a promise to Abraham and then reiterated his commitment to that promise whenever the situation started to look like that promise might not come to pass. The first statement of the promise is in Genesis chapter 12 when God tells Abraham, leave your country, leave your people, leave your family and go to the land I will show you. God intends to make him a great nation, to bless the world through him. And what makes Abraham an example of faith for all time and especially for the writer of the Hebrews, is captured in that little statement about going to the land that God will show him. He hasn't seen it yet. 
Abraham sets off on the journey without seeing the destination. He went by faith, not by sight. And remember that for the writer of the Hebrews, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Abraham walked by faith. Along the way, God specified a little more about the promise. And faith eventually became sight for Abraham when he walked through Canaan. And God said, to your offspring, I will give this land. That's Genesis chapter 12. But in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham begins to wonder about the timing of the promise. He says to God, you have given me no children. Now it's kind of formal. And I don't know if that's exactly how it played out. But it might have sounded something more like, um, God, all that talk about making me into a great nation, it's looking like it might be undone. I'm an old guy and I'm only getting older and I don't have a single son yet. What's going on? Right? That's how we talk to God. God responds with an object lesson. Kind of like a children's sermon for this old man. Genesis 15 says God took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens, count the stars. So shall your offspring be. Then comes the biggest test. The promised child, Isaac, has been born and God tells Abraham to offer him as a sacrifice. And just as Abraham is about to go through with it, An angel of the Lord says, no, 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 no. Don't do it. Now I know that you fear God. Now interpretations of that episode in Genesis 22, they run far and wide. And we do not have time to get into those tonight. But the connection with the Hebrews passage is what God says after the rush of adrenaline has subsided. Genesis 22. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. That's the verse that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 14. Whereas God had repeatedly promised and promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of him, here he swore an oath by his own name, the highest name, to do it. And then verse 15 says that after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. God makes promises and God always keeps His promises. Now, why does God make these promises and swear these oaths? Right? He does it for our sake. He doesn't do it for His own sake. He does it for our sake. That's what verse 18 gets at. Right? God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. When standing for purity makes you the punchline of a joke, don't give up. Cling to hope because God is faithful. He has made promises. He has sworn an oath. 
and he cannot lie. When speaking for truth makes you the target of ridicule, cling to hope because God is faithful. He has made promises, he has sworn an oath, and he cannot lie. Those of us who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us should be greatly encouraged that God makes promises and God always keeps His promises. What God promises will eventually come to pass. We might not see it now. We might not even see it soon. But eventually, the promises of God will prevail. Now, the end of that verse, right? It says that there is a hope that we have fled to and taken hold of. And that leads me to ask what's the hope that is offered to us that we've taken hold of? Right? It's just sitting there in the verse. So I was wondering what that was. So I thought about it. I thought about all the text that we've covered so far in this series. And I think that Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 says it best. If we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we share in all that belongs to Christ. Our hope, then, is to share in all that belongs to Christ. What He is, we will be. Where He is, we will also be. Romans 8.17 says something very similar. Now if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Our hope is to share in all that belongs to Christ. That's the hope that we have fled to, and that's the hope that we've taken hold of. And that's the hope that comes to play in verses 19 and 20 of our passage. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. How are you going to stick with it when it's so much easier to just give up? You're going to stick with it By hoping with a hope that's strong as an anchor. You're anchored in, and the anchor will hold. Now back in high school, I was there once. I had a friend, and he loved going fishing. I didn't. But on those days when I didn't really have anything else going on, he would call me up and I'd say, okay, let's go. And our fishing spot at that time was this little recreational lake in town. And they stocked it with big catfish and feeders that dropped little food pellets every hour on the hour. And after a few outings there, I actually began to think I was a decent fisherman. (laughs) At 3 o'clock, the feeders would drop the food. I would cast my line out there, chicken liver on the hook, reeling a fish every time. Simple. Well, he bought a canoe, 
and asked if I wanted to go out to the real lake with him. The one without the feeders. Nothing else was going on, and so I went. We loaded the canoe in the back of his truck, and then he brought out this little anchor that he had rigged up. It was a 10-pound dumbbell (laughs) with some rope attached to it. And we got out there, and we rowed over to what he said was a can't-miss fishing spot. Prime time out there. And he tossed that little anchor overboard. The rope spooled out, and it stopped when it hit the floor of the lake. All right, he said, let's catch some fish. So we started fishing, but a few minutes later, I started noticing we're drifting away. No wonder we aren't catching any fish. We're not in the prime spot. We've got to pull that thing up and get back to the prime spot. So we pulled the anchor up, rowed back over, threw the anchor back out, and a few minutes later, the same thing happened. Look around. We drifted again. So we repeat the process several times that afternoon. Throw the anchor out, drift, pull the anchor up, row back to the spot, throw the anchor out again. And I never did catch any fish that day on the real lake. And that made me rethink how good of a fisherman I really am. But I also figured out that afternoon that not just any anchor will do. The size and quality of the anchor makes a big difference. And here the anchor of hope is said to be firm and secure with Jesus in the inner sanctuary of heaven. It won't get lifted up and moved when the waves push against it. It won't rust out and deteriorate after too much exposure to the elements. The anchor will hold. Back in 1902, a man named Daniel Towner wrote a hymn called My Anchor Holds. It captures this image so well. Here's what it says. Troubles almost whelm the soul. Griefs like billows o'er me roll. Tempters seek to lure astray. Storms obscure the light of day. But in Christ I can be bold. I have an anchor that shall hold. And it holds. My anchor holds. So when the winds and the tides and the storms come, we have an anchor that will hold. We aren't promised that there won't be any storms. In fact, you could make the case that because there's an anchor at all, probably implies that we can expect them. They're going to batter us this way and that. What we are promised is that the anchor will hold. And when we finish the race, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. He is the one who blazed the trail ahead of us and made a way for us. He is our high priest forever. God's promise is true. God's character is good. God's purpose is secure. So don't give up and don't give in. Instead, stick with it because God is not unjust and He will not forget your work. Let's pray.
God, You have gone to great lengths to secure our hope and make it sure. I pray for each person here, from the youngest to the oldest, that we would not lose hope. That we would stick with it. Thank You that You are a God who makes and keeps promises. You are the faithful one who keeps pursuing us even when doubts weigh heavy on our hearts. And we are grateful to have an anchor that will hold. In Jesus' name.